Open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. The passage we'll be looking at today begins in verse number 27. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Today we come to the second of six series in which Jesus uh, talks about morality. Having established that the law is in fact confirmed, he now speaks about different aspects of the law. And he does so using contrast. You have heard, but I tell you. And as we saw last week, and we have before that, there's always this suspicion that Jesus is starting something new. That this is a new interpretation, that this is a new religion of some kind. And this is simply not the case. The purpose of his coming was to confirm that the Old Testament is in fact scripture and not not to do away with it. He did not come to abolish but to affirm. So when we come to the contrast beginning in verse 21, we looked at last week and to the end of chapter 5. We see that Jesus is not contrasting his teaching with that of the Old Testament, but rather his teaching versus those during that time, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who were teaching different things in the synagogue. Jesus is not contradicting scripture. What he is doing is contradicting, contradicting the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Whenever Jesus speaks of the Old Testament, he says, it is written. Here you find you have heard. And here, what he's talking about, you know, when you go to temple, when you go to synagogue and you hear the Pharisees or you hear the teachers of the law teach, this is what they say, but I'm telling you that it is something quite different. The way that they had been taught the Old Testament uh, is wrong. The way they have heard it, I would say, is wrong. And Jesus comes to correct that. So this is not a new teaching. This is not a new doctrine. It's not even a new interpretation. It is affirming what the law meant in its original intent, its original direction, which points to Jesus. Those who were listening to Jesus when he gave the Sermon on the Mount the first time had been taught a very narrow understanding of the law. It, all, it was all external. You know, do this, don't do that, and if you keep these things, then you're a good person. And instead of love as this is why I do these things, or this is why I don't do these things, it became sort of this uh, almost gymnastics and logic and reasoning to explain why the Pharisees believed what they did. But the end result was when people left the temple or they left the synagogue, synagogue, they felt very good about themselves. I have not broken any of these Ten Commandments, so I'm a pretty good person. Well, if you remember, as Jesus begins... To, uh, to speak the good news of the kingdom, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. One doesn't walk away with a great feeling that I can do this on my own, but rather a need 
of God's help in our lives. This is what Jesus expects of his followers. It is a call to a particular way of life. Not in order to become a Christian, but because, in fact, these people are Christians. To review briefly what we saw last week, there are three aspects that really help us understand or have a proper understanding of the law. First of all, the holiness of God, which is seen in his majesty and his glory. God is omnipresent. God is omniscient. So all acts that we commit are committed in his presence. And all thoughts that we have are known to him because he knows all things. So knowing that God is holy and that God is everywhere and that God knows all things. When we read the sixth commandment, which says you shall not murder, we looked at last week, or the seventh commandment, which says you shall not commit adultery, what are we to think? Are we to imagine that God will allow us, with no blame attached, to get as close as possible to breaking that law without actually breaking it? That is, God doesn't care if I think murderous thoughts, wishing another person dead, or that some harm would come to that person. Or God doesn't care if I say all sorts of terrible things against that person, either to that person or about that person to others. Or that God doesn't care if I do all sorts of horrible things to that person just so I don't kill them. You know, just so they don't die. That God is okay with that. Um, One almost gets the feeling that this is what these people have been taught. With regard to what we're going to look at today, that God doesn't care if I think thoughts regarding another person in a sexual context. Or if I engage in all sorts of physical and even sexual activity, but I don't actually commit adultery, then I'm okay. If you know anything about the Gospels, you know that this is not the case. But in the light of the holiness of God, we should already know this. We should already know that God doesn't give commandments and then say, you can go as close to the edge as possible and that's okay with me. The second thing that we need to know as we look at the law is the place of the heart, our intentions, our motivations. Here again, we think of the character of God. Does God not know what we're thinking? You know, we can in fact deceive each other by our external acts. God knows what's going on in our hearts. The expression of the law is primarily external because a judge cannot look into your heart. Only God can. But that doesn't mean that the law is only external. The heart is involved. Why do you do the things that you do? Or why do you not do the things that you're supposed to do? Then the third thing that we saw last week, and this is really important for the law, is that the law shows God's concern for people. It protects life. It protects persons. And as we saw in two respects, the person who is sinned against, obviously if you think murderous thoughts against someone or insult them or murder them, God is very concerned about that person. Here in our passage, uh, someone that you lust after. But God is also concerned with the person who sins. See, it isn't simply that I can hurt someone, but in sinning, I, in in a real sense, hurt myself as well. Now, as we come to our passage today, there are certain difficulties which present themselves. First of all, the culture in which we live. 
uh, unlawful, according to God's law, sexual activities are seen as a primary motivating force. Um, think, for example, the idea that a particular product will give you sex appeal. What does that mean? Well, the ability to create sexual appeal that will cause other people to desire you in a sexual way, which is not lawful. That is the ability to create lust in other people. And then consider the sexual images that are used to sell products. I'm sure you've been struck by the fact that oftentimes the images we see have almost nothing to do with the product, but they're trying to sell the product. The expression sex sells perhaps should be lust sells, or perhaps better, forbidden sex sells. Thus, that which Jesus forbids is in fact one of the pillars of the structure of our society. It's a theme found in music, in theater, in TV shows, talk shows. So when we come to what Jesus has to say, it really is difficult for us to get our minds around it. The second thing, the second difficulty is there are many who study this passage who believe that what Jesus demands is impossible and inhuman. Some go further and say that even the seventh commandment itself is contrary to human needs. One might say God-given needs. God made me this way. Why will he then not let me follow these urges? Surprised to find that one commentator wrote, if this is to be taken as a demand of Jesus, then it must be said that he is demanding the impossible. For it is the universal experience that the sexual impulses are uncontrollable one could respond that what is impossible with man is possible with God. And it is the universal experience of Christians that sexual urges are controllable. There are, in fact, faithful marriages. There are unmarried people who are able to control their urges. That which seems to make us victims to our urges should, in fact, be submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The third difficulty we face is that the church in many sectors has lowered its standards, um, thereby finding the call of Jesus in this regard as too confining, too restrictive, and even legalistic. Instead, many in the church now say, this is the basis of our morality. First of all, it depends on a given circumstance. Rather than some code that was written centuries ago, some predetermined code, the circumstances will determine for me what is right and what is wrong. And then secondly, and this sounds very Christian, that the absolute for Christians is love. But when you do this, then love, in fact, can allow almost anything. But even if the culture, popular thinking, or the social sciences, academic thinking, the church, religious thinking, do not conspire to pull us away from Christ, we ourselves are very pleased to go that way anyway. See, the fourth difficulty with this passage is that it is profoundly convicting. If what Jesus says is correct, then we are in serious trouble. If there is a command that should drive us back to the Beatitudes, it is this one, that we are poor in spirit, we should mourn over our sins, we should be humble and hunger and thirst after righteousness. It is this command, if we take it seriously, that makes it very evident that we are always in need of the grace of God. 
So these are the difficulties today we face as we open to this passage, as we study it, as we apply it, as we try to live it out in our daily lives. Two more things and then we'll get into it. First of all, there is not the slightest suggestion here that Jesus is opposed to natural natural sexual relations, that is, in the law between a husband and a wife. Marriage is something that God instituted in the Garden of Eden. The Sixth Commandment protects life, do not murder. The Seventh Commandment protects marriage. And in protecting marriage, it protects society. It is for the good of society. Secondly, Jesus is dealing with all forms of sexual immorality. To argue that Jesus is only speaking to men, that lets all the women off, um, or that he's only speaking about adultery, that leaves all the single people off, um, I I think is to be as narrow as the original listeners were. I think Jesus is speaking of all forms of sexual immorality. And therefore, those who suddenly, or who began feeling self-righteous because they had never committed adultery, find themselves under the conviction of the law. I would argue that even if we didn't have the Sermon on the Mount, or if we didn't have these particular verses, we should have already had a sense that there's more to the Seventh Commandment than simply the act itself. Because of the Tenth Commandment, The Tenth Commandment says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Pretty clear. You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land, his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. In Romans chapter 7, Paul makes the case that he felt that he was perfect, that he was without sin, until he came to the Tenth Commandment. And when when he read the Tenth Commandment, suddenly the house of cards came collapsing. He realized, in fact, that he was a sinner. Francis Schaeffer, in speaking on this passage, has said that before you break any of the first nine commandments, you always break the tenth first. It is the hub. Consider, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods beside me. No, we covet to determine the right to determine what our gods will be. You shall not worship any graven images. No, we covet the right to present or represent God as we choose. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. No, we covet the right to use God's name as we choose, as carelessly or even carefully as we choose. Remember the Sabbath day to rest and keep it holy. No, we covet the right to determine our use of time. We will determine how we use our time. Honor your father and your mother. No, we covet that honor. We want to be honored more than others. You shall not murder. No, we covet the right to treat others as we think they should be treated. And if they treat us badly, then we feel like we have the right to treat them as we choose. You shall not commit adultery. Here we are. Here we are. We covet that which does not lawfully belong to us. You shall not steal. Why do people steal? Because they first covet. You shall not bear false witness. Why do people lie? Because, in fact, they covet something more than the truth. They think something is more important or is better than the truth. And then finally, the tenth commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not covet what belongs to your neighbor. 
Conveniently, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had overlooked this. One could make the case that Jesus should have not had to say the things that he said in our passage today. Because there it is in the Tenth Commandment. Jesus raises the issue of lust. He doesn't speak of coveting, but of lusting. Uh, Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully in the NIV, the ESV has anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent. What is lust? What is, in order to desire someone, the desire to, in fact, um, have something that is forbidden, is to look lustfully. To lust, in Old English at least, was not always sexual in its overtones. Uh, It had very strongly, and I think for our purposes very importantly, the idea of possession. I want that which is not mine. I lust to have it. In both anger and lust, we put people down. We enjoy having power over people. We see people as things to be used. So to look lustfully is to look or to stare or to pos- as with the intent to possess or to use. I remember when I was younger, people said that the first look is never lust, it's the second look that is. And I, you know, I, that's one of those man-made legalisms. Um, I think in a, in a split second, the capacity for lust is there. The idea that we can in fact possess what does not belong to us. So the other person, and I would say whether man or woman, uh, is no longer a unique human being, someone made in the image of God, but she or he is merely fuel or a thing, a way for us to enjoy ourselves, to express oneself, to feel one's powers. Thus to lust is to desire what is forbidden, it is the desire to possess, it is the seeking of mastery over others. We know that thoughts can lead to actions. And thoughts of lust and desire can, in fact, lead to acts that are forbidden. But Jesus forbids even the thoughts. James wrote this in his letter. Everyone is tempted when by his own evil desires he is dragged away and enticed. And after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So it starts in the heart, in our thinking, with desire, and then it leads to action. The lustful, the lust itself has to be dealt with. Okay, If we don't deal with it, it will lead to actions which are wrong. So a solution is required. How do we deal with this problem? Well, in the previous section, Jesus said that the sixth commandment, do not murder, is also a commandment against anger and a commandment against insult. And there he spoke of the penalty that, listen, if, if in fact you've done something wrong, you could end up in court. And if you're not careful, you could end up in jail. Okay, there's a penalty for anger and for insulting. Here, he doesn't speak of the penalty, even though he does speak of hell. By the way, what is the penalty for adultery in the Old Testament? It's death. I think everyone that listened to Jesus knew exactly what he was talking about. This is from Leviticus. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. So Jesus, again, is dealing with a capital crime, murder and now adultery. Um, No one wants to be put to death, by the way, and so people try to fudge on the laws so it allows them to do what they want without actually being killed. 
Jesus doesn't speak of penalty here like he did with murder. Instead, he speaks of the eternal consequences. And he points to a radical solution. Uh, Let me read to you again, verses 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Is Jesus proposing self-mutilation? Is that the the solution that he proposes? Well, in the application with regard to anger, Jesus spoke of reconciliation. If you come to the altar and you recognize, I've offended my brother, leave the gift and go and be reconciled. Here he speaks in terms of discipline. There needs to be discipline. And I don't think that Jesus is to be taken literally, but rather it is a call for decisive action, for drastic action. In the same way that we saw last week, he said, deal with it now. You know, if you're, it, it doesn't matter. You're at the temple and you have to walk all the way back to Galilee. It doesn't matter. Go and take care of that. And then he gave a second example. It said, if you don't take care of it right away, you could end up in prison. Here, Jesus calls for drastic, decisive action. Not cautious, gradual, let's work our way up uh, into not lusting after other people. He does not advise a band-aid, but rather amputation. Gouge out your right eye points to the visual. Cut off your right hand points to acting out. The issue of sin is, is an, a radical problem and it must be dealt with in a radical way. It is a cancer. And people who have cancers oftentimes must have a part of the body cut away so that they can survive. And that is what sin is. We hear this radical notion from Jesus in other places. In Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. And we hear it from Paul in Galatians 5. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. One might say its lusts. By the way, the verses that come right before the idea of being crucified, the passions and the lust, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Strangely enough, we imagine that we can do the fruit of the Spirit on our own, but we cannot imagine taking the radical path of crucifixion with regard to our passions and desires. Our hearts are deceitful. Our imaginations can be degraded and abused. They need fuel. The eyes look and lust and desire to have. Don't feed your sinful thoughts. Don't look. Those who by God's grace have learned both self-control in flesh and in fantasy realize that it's not a matter of toughening up but of staying away. Paul told Timothy, flee youthful lusts. And then he continues, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. It is never enough, as a parent, as an adult, wherever, what circumstances, if you're in charge, even to ourselves, it is never enough to say, stop doing this. We must then say, this is what you should do instead. 
So Paul tells Timothy, you need to run away from youthful lust and you need to run after these other things, after faith, love, and peace. It isn't enough just to sit there and say, well, I've run away from those things and now I'm safe. No, we are to run after other things. First Timothy chapter 6, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Solution? But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. See, it's not a matter of self-control. It's a matter of running away. It's a matter of turning away, closing one's eyes, and staying away. One might say, that, that seems like you're overdoing it. Well, would you rather pluck out your eye? or cut off your right hand. It's a radical problem. demands a radical solution. Some things to consider before we leave today. First of all, I think some would complain about the times in which we live. With technology and mass media, we have photographs and printed materials. We have video, we have the internet, in which one could argue we are assaulted by images, many of which are not neutral or innocent, which are in fact designed to provoke and create lust. The images shout to us, lust after me. Look at me, desire to have me, desire to possess me, desire to master me. So many would say, well, it's not my fault. You know, I just, I just turned on the computer and I went to a particular website looking for something and then there were pop-ups and it's not my fault. This is what I think many people would have said in Jesus' time about lusting after a woman. It's her fault because she's dressed in such a provocative way. Uh, No. From what Jesus tells us, it's our fault because we lust, because we desire to have that which is not our own. It is true that there are those who seek not only to be attractive, which I think is nothing wrong with, but to be seductive. They want to be noticed. They want to stand out. They want to be stared at. They are not innocent, but neither are we, and we cannot shift our guilt to them. We can't choose the time in which we live. God put us where he did in the time that he put us here. There's no use crying over it. Um, And I don't think the answer is to go out and live in the desert somewhere. I think instead we should be thankful that we live in the times in which we do. You might say that's strange. It is in many ways a blessing in disguise, so disguised that oftentimes we don't see it. I think because of the times in which we live, it should drive us more than any generation before us with urgency, with a real sense of need, with the real sense of our sinfulness. It should drive us to the Lord Jesus to say, I can't do this on my own. Apart from the grace of God, I can't do it. I am poor in spirit. So rather than bemoaning that we live in the 21st century, I think we should be thankful and look to God for grace. The second thing to consider before we leave is that sin is not a matter of the body or of the heart, but of both. It is how corrupt we are, how poor we are, how desperately in need of grace that we are. All of us, every single one of us. Which means that we need to pray for one another. 
this gets a little or I'm on thin ice here you know your own heart well as much as you can you don't know the hearts of the people in this congregation but if they are sinners like you if they're in the need of God's grace as you are then you need to pray for them in fact I would encourage you as you face temptation to flee from it but at the same time to pray for your brothers and sisters because they may be experiencing the exact same temptation that you are And thirdly, a radical problem demands a radical solution. But let's face it, we live in a society in which the idea of faithful marriage um, is almost obsolete. The idea of sex outside of marriage is not seen as a problem. What Jesus has to say here just seems so ancient, um, just out of touch with reality. We need to recognize something. We live in a society and a culture which has rejected God. And I wouldn't say atheism is a problem per se, the idea that there is no God. Sure, there are people who say that. But it's more secularism. There is no need for God. And let me ask you, just think, outside of sex and adultery and all that kind of stuff, when a problem comes up in your life, is the first solution that comes to mind running to God? You know, if, if you have an issue with your health, we go to the doctor, right? If we need money, we go to the ATM, to the bank. If we need food, we go to the grocery store. And so in many ways, we are like the society around us. Um, we are very secular that there doesn't really seem to be any need for God unless there's something really serious, you know, incurable cancer, um, if you have cancer, you can go to the doctor, they can deal with that. But something incurable that other people can't take care of, then we run to God. And no, we are poor in spirit. We are always in need of God. We live in a culture that has turned away from the creator. And they've turned away from the notion of creation to nature. We've looked at this in a previous study, how that people no longer talk about creatures or creation. They talk about nature. But now, having turned away from creation, they are now turning away from nature. It's sort of a turning away from God, turning away from creation, now a turning away from nature. So our culture has rejected the notion that there is, in fact, a specific order in nature. That what biology has established or states is no longer seen as being so. So having rejected the nature, or nature, they now in fact believe, our culture believes that there are no rules, there are no limits. The human project can do as it wishes. We are told that we can do whatever we want. Oh, except to tell people that there are rules and limits. <laughs> Don't tell people they can't do certain things. The people should be able to do whatever it is that they want. The radicalness of Jesus in this passage is seen in, in that he confirms the Old Testament as truth. It is scripture. By the way, if it isn't scripture, then Jesus isn't the Messiah, because that's what the Old Testament is about. So he confirms it as truth. It is a revelation of the character of God, who is holy, who is majestic, who cares about people, both those sinned against and those who sin.
and his solution is gracious, loving, and he calls us to live as he intended. He made us. He knows what is best for us. He isn't in heaven somehow rubbing his hands just in delightful glee that he has made these strict rules that we are to live by. He knows what is best for us. And he is a God of grace. Have we sinned against God in, with regard to this passage? We would, if we'd be honest, we would say yes. God is a God of grace and he forgives us. But he calls us to live lives in conformity with his holiness. Back when humans had never sinned, there was in fact marriage. You have Adam and Eve. It's what God intended. It's what God's always intended. He made us. He knows what's best. Ever since our parents sinned, though, it's been going downhill. And so we, and particularly in this generation, believe that we can do whatever it is we want. Forget God. Forget creation. Forget nature. You know, if you're born a particular, a particular biology, forget that. You can do whatever you want. And the call of Jesus today is quite radical. Almost hard to embrace, but it is the truth. It is the truth, and we should see it as such. Let's pray together. Father, we live in a culture in which sexuality is seen as a tool. The idea of marriage as what God intends has been forgotten. People do get married, but then oftentimes get divorced and remarried. Somehow we've lost sight because we've turned away from the Creator, the one who knows what is best. And more than that, the one who loves those made in his image. If you didn't love us, you wouldn't care what we did. You would let us go our own way and suffer the consequences. But as a loving father, you seek to guide and direct us. That we would live lives that bring a sense of satisfaction, of integration, and above all, of joy. This passage, I think, in many ways rubs us the wrong way. Maybe on some level it's not even a matter of conviction. It just seems so antiquated. May your spirit help us to see. May he open our eyes to see the truth. And above all, may he show us that you love us. And you've shown that love by sending your son, the Lord Jesus. Thank you for bringing us together today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.